You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Morning, Hope. Romans 7, verse 7. Before we get started, I'm going to assume that most of us today have looked in a mirror. Is that true? Hands up if you've already looked in a mirror today. Have you looked in a mirror? All right. And why did we look in a mirror this morning? Why did we do that? Here's why. Here's why. Because we wanted to know what we looked like, right? Wanted to know what we looked like. I had to look in the mirror today, make sure my hair was in place. Check that out, right? Men, maybe you had to look in the mirror, make sure your beard was in a good spot, right? You want to go with your beard all crazy? Why do we look in a mirror? Because we had some concern about what we look like on the outside. And rightly so. There's nothing wrong with that. But here's the question. Are we equally as concerned about how we look on the inside as we are about how we look on the outside? Are we equally concerned about the condition of our hearts as we are about the condition of our appearance? Because isn't it true that just because things look okay on the outside, that doesn't mean that things are okay on the inside. Is that true? That's just true. So before we get started today, let's begin by asking ourselves a tough question. Here it is. If I'm honest, am I more concerned about the outside of me or the inside of me? If I'm honest, am I more concerned about the condition of my appearance or am I more concerned about the condition of my heart? We can think of it this way. Am I only looking at the mirror that will show me my reflection on the outside? Or am I looking into the spiritual mirror that will show me the reflection of the inside? Because in Romans chapter seven today, the apostle Paul is gonna share with us about a time in his life when he looked into the spiritual mirror that showed him his heart. And that spiritual mirror is the law of God. And as Paul looked into that spiritual mirror, what he saw inside of him absolutely devastated him because for the first time, Paul truly saw and he experienced and he knew the bottomless pit of evil inside of him that is called sin. And this is something that you and I need to see and experience and know as well. Because as painful as it is, as difficult as it is to see the ugliness of sin within us, it's far better that we actually know what's on the inside than not know. It's far better that we can actually see what's on the inside than not see it. And here's why. Because it's only when we can see the sin within us that we will run to the Lord to save us from it. It's only when we can actually see it that we will run to the Lord to save us from it. And to help us to see, help us to see the sin within us. Here's what God does. He holds up his word as the spiritual mirror that exposes and confronts the sin within us so that we can see it. Because again, when we can see it, then we'll run to the Lord to save us from it. So ask yourself, do I really want to see it? Am I willing to go there this morning? Do I really want to see the condition of my heart? Because if we do, God is able 
to show us that today so that we can run to him for rescue. And that leads us right into point number one, which is this. When sin is confronted by the law, sin fills me with evil desires. When sin is confronted by the law, sin fills me with evil desires. So to recap, the main point that Paul has made so far in Romans chapter seven is this, that those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ have been released from the law, meaning that Christians are no longer under the Old Testament law. Christians are no longer condemned by the Old Testament law. And here's why. Because Jesus has fulfilled the law. This is the gospel. So let's just take a moment now to remember the gospel, that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. This is why he came. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus said this up on the screen. He said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus came and he fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies made about him. But not only that, he also fulfilled the law, meaning that he perfectly fulfilled all of the requirements of the Old Testament law. And here's how that applies to us today. The law says, obey perfectly and you will live. Obey perfectly and you will live. But we can't do that. So Jesus came into the world and he obeyed the law perfectly for us. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly for you. He obeyed the law perfectly on your behalf. And here's why. So that through faith in him, by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, his perfect obedience to the law could be credited to your account so that God can see you just as though you had obeyed the law. Praise God. The law also says this, disobey and you will die. Disobey and you will die. And this is also why Jesus came. He came to pay for every single one of our violations of the law by dying in our place on the cross. So hear this. Jesus came to live the perfect life we could never live in our place. And he came to die on the cross in our place so that through faith in him, we can be declared innocent of sin and righteous in the sight of God. Therefore, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are no longer under the law. You are no longer condemned by the law because Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law in every way on your behalf. Praise God. But some people reading this letter might be misunderstanding Paul because they might be thinking that what Paul is saying is that somehow the law is bad or evil or even sinful. So Paul anticipating this uh, says this in verse seven. Have a look at Romans seven, verse seven. He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Paul's saying, do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the law is sin, absolutely not. The law is from God. The law cannot be sin, but there is some kind of relationship between the law and sin that Paul wants his readers to clearly understand. So look what he says again in verse seven. He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? 
by no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So here's the relationship he's talking about between the law and sin. Paul says, if it had not been for the law, he would not have known sin. That's the relationship. Through the law, Paul came to know sin. And so when he uses that word sin, what does he mean by that? Why isn't he saying sins, plural? Why is he saying sin, singular? Well, here's what he's talking about up on the screen in Romans chapter 6. Look what he says. He says, let not sin... Therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So Paul is saying, there's this thing living on the inside of us that's called sin. And it wants to rule over our bodies. It has desires. It has passions. And it wants to try to get us to obey them. Here's ultimately what Paul is describing up on the screen. That sin is a bottomless pit of evil living inside of me. Sin is a bottomless pit of evil living inside of me. Sin never gets to the place where it's like, okay, that's enough darkness. That's enough wickedness. That's enough evil. Never. It will never be satiated. Sin wants to go deeper and darker and darker and darker and lead us further and further away from God to places we never, ever thought we could ever go. That's the sin within us. This is true of you and true of me. There's a bottomless pit of evil inside of every one of us called Sin. Let's consider what Paul's saying about this again. Look at verse 7. He says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known, known sin, known sin. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, I have come to know this thing living inside of me called sin. I have felt it. I have experienced it. I know it. And the way that Paul has come to know sin is through the law. But this isn't what he's saying. He's not, he's not saying that the law came up to him one day and said, hey, Paul, I want to introduce you to sin. And the law took him over to sin and said, hey, sin, Paul, Paul, sin, and they shook hands. That's not how we came to know sin through the law. He tells us exactly how he came to know sin through the law in verse seven. He continues, look what he says. He says, for I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So here, here's what he's saying. He's saying, I, he's saying he's come to know the sin within him through an experience that he had with the 10th commandment, which says, you shall not covet. So here that is up on the screen, the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So do not covet here means do not strongly desire something that doesn't belong to you. Do not lust after something you don't have. And Paul even gives us some additional insight into what coveting is in Colossians 3 up on the screen. Look what he says. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, Notice, which is idolatry. So Paul says that covetousness is idolatry. It's not kind of like you desire something, you could take it or leave it. It's when those wants have crossed a line and now they've become worship. It's, I'm, it's lusting after something. It's not just kind of like you take it or leave it. It's like, man, I want that thing. Paul says it's crossed a line. It's become worship. You're worshiping that thing. 
covetousness is idolatry. We see that this command not to covet is both in the Old Testament and the New Testament because coveting is idolatry. Coveting is about seeking happiness or peace or security or joy and ultimately life in created things instead of in God. Coveting is about replacing God with created things. And as Paul one day was reading and thinking about the 10th commandment, do not covet, the commandment acted like a mirror and Paul saw his reflection in the mirror and suddenly he realized that there was coveting happening in his own heart, that he was lusting after something in his heart. Verse seven, he says, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So as Paul looked at the commandment, it acted like a mirror. He saw his reflection. He saw there was coveting happening in his heart. And look what sin did next. Verse eight, he says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. In other words, as Paul looked into the mirror of the law and he realized there was coveting taking place in his heart, suddenly the sin within him rose up in rebellion to the commandment, do not covet, and it filled Paul's heart with more coveting than he'd ever experienced before or even thought was possible. This is how Paul came to know the sin within him. It was by experiencing its power over him. Look again at verse eight. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now notice that Paul says that sin seized an opportunity. It's actually a fascinating phrase in the Greek. What it means is to build an army base from which to attack your enemy. So what he's saying is that it was like sin built an army base right beside the commandment. And when Paul came near the commandment, sin took him out. Kind of like this up on the screen. So Paul was looking into the 10th commandment, do not covet. It acted like a mirror. He saw himself in and he realized I'm coveting. There's lust happening in my heart right now. And when he realized that, he didn't realize that sin had built a base right here. And the, the alarm system for sin went off when he started to experience some conviction and sin then attacked him and filled his heart with way more covetousness than he ever thought was possible. Because this is what sin does. It pushes back against the word of God. It rebels against the word of God. I mean, do you, ever, do you ever wonder why you have these desires that are the complete opposite of what God wants? Here's why, because of sin. When God says, don't do that, sin says, do it, do it. When God says, do this, sin says, don't. This is what sin does. It seeks to fill our hearts with desires that are the opposite of what God wants. And because Paul has experienced this, he can say, I know, I know the sin within me. I've experienced how strong it is. I, I know what it's like when, when sin fills my heart with coveting. I know what it's like to desire things so much that you feel like your heart's gonna explode, it's gonna burst if you can't have them. I know the sin within me, he says. Now, it's important to note 
that many commentators believe that Paul had this experience while he was a Pharisee. So as a Pharisee, Paul would have thought about the law primarily in terms of outward behavior. So if a Pharisee was to approach the law, it might look something like this. Okay, I'm going to give myself a bit of a, uh, a checkup here. So uh, first commandment, you shall, not, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, I only go to the temple, so I'm good. Check. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. I've never done that. Check. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Well, I don't even say the name of God, so check. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I am all about the Sabbath. Everybody knows that. Check. Honor your father and mother. Yeah, I'm pretty nice to them. Check. You shall not murder. I've never done that. Check. You shall not commit adultery. I haven't done that. Check. You shall not steal. I've done that for a long time, so check. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. I haven't gone to court lately, haven't testified or lied in court, so check. And then Paul got here to this one. You shall not covet. This one's all about the desires of the heart. It's very clear. And as he looked into this mirror, he's like, I'm doing that right now. And it might've been in that moment that he put together that if I've broken this one, then I've also broken one and two because I have another God and I've made myself an idol to worship. So God's law is not simply about outward behavior. It's also about the heart. This is why Jesus said this to the Pharisees up on the screen. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Question, when you consider sin, the issue of sin in your own life, do you focus primarily on outward behavior or on the desires of your heart? When you think about, when you consider sin in your own life, is, is your focus mainly on your outward behavior or the desires of your heart? Because we can think of it like this up on the screen. Paul would have looked at his outward behavior and he'd be like, man, I'm killing it. Like, I'm righteous, check out my behavior. But now he's saying, but, but my heart is filled with idolatry. And we can be in the same place. We can look at our outward behavior and you're like, ah, I'm good. I don't think I'm sinning very much. But we can be walking around with our hearts filled with idolatry. So ask yourself, if I'm being brutally honest, is there idolatry happening in my heart? Moment of transparency. This week, the Lord showed me massive idolatry happening in my heart. Things that I had been aware of, but he showed me in a deeper way and I had to repent and I'm continuing to repent of this. What about, what about you? Are there things that you probably want way too much? How about this up on the screen? Respect. I just want people to respect me. I want, I want my spouse to respect me. I want my kids to respect me. I want my coworkers to respect me. I want my peers to respect me. I want to be respected. Or how about the praise of man or the approval of man? I just want to be liked. I want people to like me. I want people to approve of me. I want people to say, well done. I want people to give me a pat on the back. 
And the question isn't so much do I have those desires, the question is do I want those things too much? Well, here's the test. Here's the test. When I'm desiring respect or the praise of man and I can't have it, do I get upset? Do I get angry? Because that's a sure sign I'm wanting that, desiring that way too much. How about this up on the screen? Pleasure. Pleasure. I just want, I want streams of pleasure coming into my life from things that I can purchase, things that I can buy. I want, I want to experience pleasure. I want my life to be easy. I don't want waves. I don't want difficulty. I just want easy. I want comfortable. I just, I just want to be comfortable. Again, the question isn't whether I have those desires. The question is, are they too strong? The test is, when I can't have the pleasure I want, when I can't have an easy life, when I can't have comfort, do I get upset? Do I get angry? It's a clear sign that I want that way too much. Or how about this, control. I want to control my circumstances. I want to control everything in my life. I want to control other people. I want obedience. I want my children just to obey me. I want other people to do what I say. I want other people to change. I want my spouse to change. I want the people around me to change. And again, the question isn't, do I have those desires or not? The question is, do I desire these things too much? When I can't have control, when I can't have obedience, when people won't change, do I get angry? Do I, do I get upset? It's a sure sign I want those things too much. Or how about this up on the screen? Security and safety. I just, I just want to feel safe. I just want to feel secure. I just, want to, I just want to fill my life with things that are going to take care of me and make me feel safe. Again, it's not a question of whether I desire those things. It's do I desire them too much? When I want safety and security and I can't have it, do I get upset? Do I get angry? Where do you see idolatry in your heart? What do you want too much? Where can you see sin influencing your desires? Can you say with the Apostle Paul, I have come to know the sin within me? Can you say with Paul, I know what it's like to be filled with, with covetous desires. I know what it's like to have a heart filled with idolatry. Can you say that? Can you say that you know the sin within you? Because it's only when we know the sin within us that we'll run to the Lord to save us from it. And if you're seeing idolatry in your heart right now, let's not just kind of rush past this moment. Let's take a moment right now to, to run to the Lord. Let's take a moment right now to come before the Lord, each one of us individually, if the Lord is speaking to you right now, to come before the Lord in prayer, in confession, and repentance. Just like take 30 seconds right now, right where you are. If, if you see idolatry in your heart right now, let's just take 30 seconds with the Lord right now. Lord.
Let's jump into our, our second and our final point. Here it is. Point number two. When sin is confronted by the law, sin kills me through what is good. When sin is confronted by the law, sin kills me through what is good. Paul continues now to share his story with us. Look at verse nine. Look what he says. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So that sounds kind of weighty and complicated. Let's break this down. So first, Paul says that once he was alive apart from the law. So here's what he means. He means that before that day, when he looked into the law and saw his reflection and saw his covetousness, before that day when sin attacked him and filled him with even more covetousness, before that happened, he says, life was pretty good. In a sense, Paul felt alive. He felt good. He felt at peace. He felt confident. He felt secure. He thought he was doing well. He thought he was righteous because of his behavior. So in that sense, Paul felt alive. But look what happened next in verse nine. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So Paul says, I felt alive, I felt good. I thought I was doing well. I thought I was righteous. But then on that day that he read the commandment, do not covet and realize that he himself was coveting, in that moment, sin came alive. Meaning that up until that point, the sin within Paul, it was there, but it was comparatively and relatively dormant. It was like the sin within him was operating at like a two out of 10. It was there, but it wasn't particularly active. But then on that day, on that day when he looked into the commandment, do not covet, and he realized he was coveting, sin came alive. The sleeping dragon inside of him, it woke up, it rose up, and it breathed the fire of coveting into his heart so that he was now on fire with out-of-control desires. In other words, when the law of God confronted the sin within Paul, the sin within him went berserk. The two out of 10 activity of sin suddenly became 10 out of 10. And he describes to us what that felt like at the end of verse nine. Look what he says. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So obviously we know Paul isn't talking about a physical death. Paul wrote the rest of this letter, so he didn't, we know he didn't die. And we also know he wasn't talking about his spiritual death because this took place before his conversion. So Paul was already spiritually dead. So what does he mean? Well, here's what he means. He says that when sin came alive and he died, that he felt the opposite of alive. Meaning, he used to feel secure, now he feels insecure. Now he feels weak. Now he's afraid, he's broken, he's undone, he's become unglued, he feels powerless, he's ruined, crushed, destroyed, completely taken out by sin. Paul had been a self-righteous Pharisee. He thought that, that God was pleased with him because of his good behavior, but now he sees his heart. Now he sees the sin within him. Now he sees himself as a sinner. And any thought of being righteous before God because of his behavior just shatters into a million pieces in front of his face. This was like a kind of death for Paul. It was a total identity crisis. Because in a moment... He went from thinking he was righteous to seeing that he was just as sinful 
as everybody else. Question, have you experienced a death like that? Do you know what it's like to think you're doing pretty well and then all of a sudden discovering that you're a sinner just like everyone else? Maybe your story's similar to Paul's experience. Maybe there was a time in your life that you thought you were a really good person. You looked at your behavior, you compared yourself to other people and you're like, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I'm righteous. But then there was that day that day when you came to know the sin within you, that day when you came to know the evil that's inside of you, that day when you saw that you were a sinner and it was like a kind of death for you because you came to know that you were not righteous before God. But then, but then, because you saw your sin, you ran to Jesus and he saved you. Is that your story? Do you know what it's like to experience a death like that? Because it's only when we can see the sin within us that we run to the Lord to save us. Look what he says next in verse 10. He says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So the commandment, do not covet, that command gives life. Do not covet, that gives life if you can follow it. Do not covet, do not worship idols. Worship God perfectly and you will live. But this commandment that promised life, it became the very place where sin ambushed Paul and took him out, that he experienced a kind of death. But here's a really important question. Why was sin's attack on Paul so very effective? What was the secret weapon that sin used against Paul that he seemed to have no defense for? Well, he tells us right here, look at verse 11. He says, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Notice that sin attacked Paul with a very specific tactic. That sin attacked Paul with a very specific secret weapon. Do you see what it is there? because it's the same tactic and it's the same secret weapon that sin uses on us today. Look again what it says, verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. There it is right there. That is the secret weapon of sin. It's deception. Deception. By using deception, sin succeeded in filling Paul's heart with covetousness. We need to grab hold of this today. We need to know this. Deception is the tactic and the secret weapon of sin. Deception is the tactic and the secret weapon of sin. Hebrews 3, up on the screen. The writer says this, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is the secret weapon. This is the tactic of sin, deceitfulness, lies, false promises. And, and what is sin after ultimately? This, a hardening of the heart. This is what sin is after, a hardening of the heart, a heart that becomes less and less interested in the word of God, less and less interested in prayer, less and less interested in fellowship with, with other believers, less and less interested in church, less and less interested in the things of God. This is what sin is after. So how exactly does sin use or wield this secret weapon of deception? Well, here's how. Through promises. 
through promises. Sin promises us that what we're looking for can be found out there in created things. Sin promises us that happiness and security and lasting pleasure and peace and comfort and life can be found in created things. It's just like when Satan pointed Adam and Eve to the fruit and promised that what they needed was found there. Likewise, the sin within us points us to created things and lies to us, promising us that what we need is found there. Hear this. Deception is the secret weapon of sin. So we can think of it like this on the screen. Paul came to the 10th commandment, do not covet. As he, as he looked into that commandment, he saw his reflection. He saw his heart. He saw that he was coveting. In that moment, the sin within him, the alarms went off and sin attacked him viciously. But with what? With this, the weapon of deception. False promises. Arrows aimed at Paul's heart saying, hey, Paul, pleasure is found here. Peace is found here. What you need is found here. Real life is found here. And Paul was deceived. And then his heart was filled with idolatry. And this is what sin does to us as well. So how do we fight back against this? Well, here's how. With the truth, right? It's with the truth. And we get ready to fight against sin by rehearsing the truth over and over and over again. We prepare ourselves for sin's attack of deception by rehearsing over and over and over again what is true. So here are three powerful truths for us to rehearse that will help us to prepare against the deceptions of sin. Here they are up on the screen. The first one, God is enough for me. We need to rehearse that over and over and over again. God is enough for me. God is enough for me. God is enough for me. Where does it say that? Here's where. One place, Psalm 73 the psalmist says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Notice the psalmist says, who have I in heaven but you? The psalmist is saying, in heaven, in eternity, you are all that I will need. You are all that I will need. Therefore, that is true of right now. He says, and there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. He's saying, because you are all I'll need for eternity, you are all I need right now. You are enough, you are enough, you are enough. Consider this also. If God is enough for God, if God is enough for God, then is not God more than enough for us? He is enough, he is enough, he is enough. God is enough for me. We need to rehearse that again. We need to rehearse this as well. I am dead to sin. I am dead to sin. God is enough for me and I am dead to sin. Again, Romans 6, 11. So you must, you must, you also, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must, you have to think this way, Paul says. You have to do this. Rehearse it over and over and over again. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are dead to sin. The slave of sin that you used to be, that person is dead, gone, buried, never coming back, done. That's not who you are now. Now you are alive to God. You are united to Christ. Now you can say no to sin and yes to Jesus. Amen? 
We need to rehearse this. God is enough. God is enough. I am dead to sin. I am dead to sin. It is no longer my master. And now this, we need to know what sin's up to. Sin wants to take me out. That's always what sin is about. Sin wants to take me out. Again, Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is the tactic. This is the secret weapon of sin. What is sin trying to do? Harden our hearts. Why? So that we will fall away from God. That we will move further and further away from God, further away from God, further away, further away, further into sin, further into sin, further into sin, further into sin, until so we finally end up somewhere that we just could not ever imagine that we'd ever end up. So here's Paul's point, that our problem is not God's law. Our problem is not God's commands. Our problem is not God's word. Our problem is sin and sin's deception. This is our problem. Have a look at what Paul says next in verse 12. He says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. God's command, do not covet, is holy. God's command, do not covet, is his perfect will for our lives. Therefore, the commandment isn't the problem. Sin is the problem. This is Paul's whole point. And he concludes now in verse 13 with a really important question. Why did all of this happen to him anyway? Why did God allow the sin within Paul to come alive, deceive him, fill him with covetousness so that he experienced a kind of death? Why did God allow this to happen to Paul? Well, he tells us, look at verse 13 and we'll finish here. He says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, it was sin. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. Now look what he says next. In order that, here's the reason why, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So why did God allow this? Here's why. So that the sin within Paul, the bottomless pit of evil inside of him might be exposed and confronted and seen by Paul for what it is. Because as painful as it is, as difficult as it is to see the ugliness of the sin within us, it's far better that we, that we know what's on the inside than not know. It's far better that we see what's on the inside than not see. Because it's only when we see the sin within us that we run to the Lord to save us. And maybe you were here today and you came in not seeing the sin within you. And maybe right now you're like, I have sin, I have sin. And you know that your sin has separated you from God. What, what, what am I supposed to do? Here's what you do. You run to Jesus. You run to Jesus. He's the Savior. He wants to save you. He, he died on the cross to make forgiveness possible. If you will put your faith in him, if you will run to him and ask him to forgive you for your sins, he will give you eternal life. He will save you forever. You will receive forgiveness of your sins and he will set you free from the power of sin. But maybe you are here today and you know Jesus Christ. 
And now maybe you've seen sin a little more clear and now you really, really wanna fight back against it. You really wanna fight against it. You, you are hating it right now. If that's you, if that's you, here's a battle plan up on the screen. Number one, remember the gospel. That is the first step. If we're gonna face our sin, we have to remember the gospel. We can't even face our sin apart from remembering the gospel. This is step one. You have to remember If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, all of your sin for your whole life has been forgiven. Receive that. All of your sin for your whole life has been forgiven. Not only that, Jesus' perfect record of obedience has been credited to your account. So God sees you now as perfect in Jesus Christ. That's who you are. That's our start point. If we're gonna fight sin, we have to remember the gospel. Second, run to the Lord. Run to the Lord. Confess your struggles to him. Ask him for help. Run to the Lord. Third R, rehearse the truth. Rehearse the truth. Be disciplined in your mind to rehearse the truth. God is enough for me. I'm dead to sin. Sin wants to take me out. Remember the gospel. Run to the Lord. Rehearse the truth. That is our battle plan to fight against the bottomless pit of evil inside of us called sin. Lord, help us. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you, God, that you've given us a mirror that we can look into and we can see ourselves. We can see what is real, what is true of us. But we can also see what is true of you, that you are merciful, that you are gracious, that you came into the world and you died on the cross to make full payment for our sins. That, that, you, that you lived the perfect life that we could never live in our place so that we could be righteous in your sight. You have broken the back of sin. We are no longer enslaved to sin. Now we can say no to it. Now we can say yes to you. But God, we, we need help in fighting against its deception. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.